When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. Hear the full show on our app, by podcast, or on 96FM.ie. Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. When we take control of our lives and our destiny, we're a small country, but we punch way above our weight. Like, I'm filming now at this stage, to be honest with you. I thought it was one of the hardest things to do. It was horrendous. We're the one for Cork and ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The lines are live. Let's kickstart the conversation. This is The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. We have a new sporting hero, or heroine, or hero. I don't know what word you're supposed to use these days. Leona McGuire, she's just something so, so special. And you know, we could be accused, those of us who follow the golf and follow the big names, of forgetting her. And why? Maybe because she's a woman, but she is just the most stunning player that we have turned out of this country in a hell of a long time, and she was brilliant last night. Absolutely brilliant. She demolished her opponent in the singles at the Solheim Cup. And bear in mind, like, this was her rookie year, pulled into the Solheim Cup as a captain's pick. Captain spotted her talent, obviously. And there she is. She played five matches, the only one to play five matches. She won four and drew one as a rookie. My God, how good is she? We'll see plenty more of Leona Maguire. Good morning to you. 1850-715-996. This is just the gift that keeps on giving this story. You have to ask a very straightforward, serious question now. How is Simon Coveney going to get himself out of this one? Because regardless of how Catherine Zappone got this job, regardless of how the process was or was not followed, whatever process was there or was not there, four months before the Taoiseach knew anything about it, it would seem that they were all talking about it. So the Taoiseach was completely blindsided by Fine Gael in in their bid to get this gig for Catherine's opponent. At least that's how it looks. And Simon Coveney are going back into the Foreign Affairs Committee in the Eruptus this, this morning. I'm assuming it's a meeting we'll be able to watch 
on the, the public feed from the Erectus. But let's bring in Paul Hosford of The Examiner um, to ask that straightforward question, Paul. Is Simon Coveney in trouble? Good morning to you. Good morning, Peter. I think, uh, in a word, yes. Uh, I think the, 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 the release of the documents yesterday by the Department of Foreign Affairs in relation to this... Can you get a small bit closer to your phone there, Paul, for me? Sorry, I'm having I'm having issues with the phone the last the last couple of days. But yeah, I think I think the the main the issue is that the, the release of these documents yesterday really didn't clear up any of the questions that were outstanding, and in fact added more questions for Simon Coveney to answer in about fifty minutes. Uh, like like you said, he's in front of the Foreign Affairs Committee. It will be will be publicly available. It'll be on Iraqis TV. It'll be on the Iraqis website if people want to tune in. Uh, from ten o'clock, it's a two-hour meeting. A, a lot of, speaking to some of the members of the of the Foreign Affairs Committee, they they reckon that the, these documents really ask more questions than they than they answered, and really go to the heart of this Catherine's opponent appointment. It seems that from the reading of the documents, that it was four months in the making this appointment. That she practically wrote her own job spec, but it was done almost entirely behind the Taoiseach's back. Can he be accused of treating his Taoiseach with disrespect here? Well, that's what uh, many people in, in Fianna Fáil feel. Uh, and it's important to remember that Fianna Fáil will get together in person for their parliamentary party think-in on Thursday. And there's an awful lot of anger about this from Fianna Fáilers. Uh, James Lawless, who was a member of the committee, was on radio on Sunday and he said, you know, this is a Fianna Gael mess. There's not a Fianna Fáiler within 10 miles of it. There wasn't anyone at the Merion hotel event, there wasn't anyone involved in, in, in this in this appointment. I mean, if you go right back and look at the documents that, that were released yesterday, Catherine's opponent text Simon Coveney on the 4th of March and thanked him for the offer. Now, what we'll, what we'll have to have cleared up for us in the, in the committee is what was that offer? What was it on, on the basis of? Simon Coveney told the committee last week that the, the, the idea of a UN special envoy on freedom of expression was kind of first put together at the end of February, but that a food for talk paper wasn't brought to his his department until the 25th of March. That would be three weeks after Catherine's phone texted him, thanking him for the offer. Uh, you know, you can go through through the documents and find there's a reference in June where a, a member of, uh, where a legal advisor in the department asked a, a number of colleagues, was Catherine's opponent doing work for the department on LGBTI um, issues in New York because she, he had been told that she was and uh, another uh, a colleague of his writes back and says that we don't you know not that we are aware of that we we've no formal agreement with Catherine's opponent. Then uh, a couple of weeks later in, in July she's talking to Niall Burgess, who's the Secretary General of the Department of Foreign Affairs, yeah. about the role. Uh, he sent her what's called a concept a concept note, uh, kind of the rough outline of the job. She goes back. With, to him with a revised version of that. Um, the day before, she texts uh, she texts Simon Coveney to say that herself and Niall Burgess had agreed that the role wouldn't be one years; it would be two. Uh, seemingly on her insistence that it would be, you know, better for her or better for the role to, to be a two year job with a one year review. Uh, it definitely seems that she had a, a major hand in at least uh, the the broad scope of the job, if if not the the granular details, but. All of this happens. This, 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 that last email is, is dated the 22nd of July. The Taoiseach didn't find out about this appointment until the 27th. 
at cabinet. Uh, we know from from our own reporting at the time that that he he felt that he was blindsided by this. The fact that it was going on for for four months and not as has previously been claimed, just a, a couple of days or. You know, yeah. we, we originally had heard that Fine Gael members had found out 20 minutes before yeah. Cabinet. We, we found out from the release of text by Leo Bragger that he actually knew about a week beforehand. Yeah. So yeah, there's, had, there's an awful lot of questions there. You also had the claim by Simon Coveney last week before the committee that Mrs. Pone, quoting from your own paper this morning, Mrs. Pone did not lobby for the role. Now, if that's not lobbying, Paul, what do you have to do? Hire a sign-writing plane and fly it over Dublin? Yeah, well, I think the, I, I think the, the actual release of the text messages kind of drives the horse and cart through the idea that, that Catherine's opponent didn't lobby. Now, Simon Cogney may well feel that he wasn't lobbied in the, I suppose, in, in the formal way, or maybe he felt that he wasn't, you know, it's a it's kind of a text a month which he doesn't seem to respond to based on the on the screen grabs that were released. So maybe he didn't feel that he was being lobbied. Maybe he gets a lot of representations on jobs and, and on things like that and doesn't, didn't feel under pressure to, to award it. You know, that's completely his prerogative. But if you look at the, the string of text messages, the fact that Catherine Zappone says that she spoke to Pascal Donoghue, the finance minister, about this, the fact that she she said that she spoke to Tonish Leo Bragger about it at the Marion event and that he was she she said that the Tonish was really excited about the, the role all of this before the role was, was made public all of this before the actual outline of the job was agreed within the department it, I, I mean the idea that she didn't lobby is really I mean you'd have to take from my point of view you'd have to take a real leap of faith to, to get to that point Is it is it a breach of procedure, Paul, to keep this from the Taoiseach for so long? Because apart from annoying the hell out of Micheál Martin, that's that's one thing. But is it a breach of procedure to keep this from the Taoiseach? Well, I suppose there's, there, there's no real defined procedure for uh, an appointee like this. So I'm, I'm sure that they, you know there are plenty of appointees that go to Cabinet that late in the day. I, I think that the real issue is that, is that one, who this is, two, that the role wasn't publicly advertised and was never, you know, it's not like, you know, some, you know, some members of, of, of semi-state boards or some members of, of state agencies or, or CEOs of, of different uh, state bodies would have to be, would go through a, a cabinet appointment. Uh, we, if, you, if you think of, say, like the, the chairman of, a, of an air, airport authority would go through the Minister for Transport and the Minister for Transport, that would happen through an open process, they would do their interviews, and then they would they would probably be sitting in the job by the time the the transport minister got to cabinet and said, "This is the person we're putting forward," and the cabinet would would sign off on it. That process is, is kind of is well known. It, it wouldn't be a surprise for the Taoiseach not to know who that was on the day. I think the real issue here is that there was obviously a, a high level discussion about a job that didn't exist before uh, a couple of weeks ago, and was appointing somebody who many uh, many Fine Gael TDs and a, and a couple of members of the current cabinet sat with that cabinet and that, the politics of it and Michal Martin tried tried very hard last week to hold himself above the politics and he's not he's not somebody who gets involved or wants to get involved in these squabbles because he will look at something like last week and say well the biggest thing that we did was the housing for all launch you know sure, sure that, that's the way he does these things all right just yeah he, he's a policy guy he's, he's not a politics guy yeah. but the fact that he didn't find out about something that was clearly in the works for a long time 
uh, will have annoyed him, definitely. Yeah. Lastly, Paul, and briefly, do you think, given your experience uh, covering government for as long as you have been now and remembering you were one of the journalists who broke the Golfgate story last year, yourself and your colleague Aoife, do you think Simon Coveney's job is on the line here? I don't I don't think we're at that point just yet either, but I do think that the his performance at the committee over the next couple of hours will be really, really important. Uh, you know, this, this, is a, this is a very strange scandal because the actual offence of putting somebody into a, a make-uppy job for 15 grand a year, it, you know, it, it's not the kind of thing that would trip up a government normally. It, it's just the fact of how this has been dealt with yeah. and that the, it seems like every release and every public statement on it make things worse. So how Simon Coveney performs at the at the at the Aractus committee in the next couple of hours will be really, really important. I don't think we're at the point where his job is in is in jeopardy just yet. Okay. All right. Leave it there for now. Thanks very much. Paul Hosford, uh political correspondent with the Irish Examiner. And that hearing it gets underway in about forty minutes time. And if anything comes out of it, you'll be the first to know. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie Oldies and Irish on Cork's 96FM is the big Sunday show on your radio. Turn it up and take it easy with the best music mix for your Sunday morning. Welcome along to the program. Lovely to be with you on a Sunday morning. Oldies and Irish with Derry O'Callaghan. Sundays, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. With Douglas Court Shopping Centre. They've got everything you need and more. Visit douglascourt.ie. Cork's 96 FM. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Quartz 96 FM. Seriously though, can you imagine how you'd feel if you were Michal Martin as Taoiseach in, in government with Fine Gael for the first time in your party's history and you discover that they're doing this behind your back, that the whole thing is done behind your back for four months and then planted on the cabinet table in front of you without so much as a buy your leave just to be stamped. <laughs> How would you? He must have been spitting feathers. But he's very quiet about it. 1850-715-996. We keep an eye on that proceeding uh, during the morning. Dave, have you ever, ever heard of a Napa Centre? It was a new one on me entirely. The Neurological Physical Habilitation Centre. Sounds like something to do with education and therapy. Uh, Let's go to Fiona. Fiona, good morning to you. Good morning, how are you? Good. Your daughter has been to a Napa centre. What is it? Where is it? And why is it so important and special? Right. So Napa is a collection of therapists who come together and work with kids with disabilities. Um, Usually physiotherapists, occupational therapists, speech and language therapists, um, and they have centres, they started off in Los Angeles in 2008 and they've been expanding ever since. So we used to live in Australia and um, our daughter Zoe went to their centre in Sydney. And then we moved back to Ireland three years ago and since then we've been to their centre. Can you get a bit closer, sorry Fiona, can you sorry. get a bit closer to your phone? You're, yeah, you're, sure. You're, can you hear me there okay? That's a bit better now, yeah, yeah. thanks. 
Um, so since we moved back to Ireland, she's been to Boston, to Napa, um, and um, a group of us mums have come together, Irish mums, and we had put a proposal together to get Napa to come to Ireland. And we're really lucky they're coming next year, around this time next year, and it's just an amazing opportunity for kids with special needs to have a different type of intervention. Yeah. So, so what did Fiona do with Napa and how long was she there? So she went for three weeks. You do three weeks at a time and you do three to four hours of therapy a day. And it's kind of a little bit um, different therapy. It's called DMI, Dynamic Movement. I can't remember what the I stands for. Um, but the physios kind of get you to um, walk on blocks and they kind of um, prompt reactions in your body. And it just creates neural, neural pathways because you're doing the same thing day in, day out for three weeks. Right. Um, and at the end of it, it it's really grueling physically for the kids, like, like compared to doing the Olympic training or something, it's very difficult. Yeah. Um, but my daughter started walking this December and I, I'm certain that it's down to the two lots of therapy yeah. that we've done through Napa. And so, Fiona, what, yeah. what is what is Zoe's difference? What What is it that she struggles so, with? She, she has um, a condition called CDKL5. There's seven kids in Ireland who have it. It's very rare. Um, and she has epilepsy. She has um, a tube to help her be fed. She's non-verbal. Um, she, she has a lot of sleep disturbances, bowel issues. So she's very complex. Um, and what Napa does is they don't kind of, it's not one one box for everyone they kind of look at your kids and go you know what would work really well for her is this and they work around each individual so it's 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 amazing it's bespoke yeah. in other words is what it, it is. is absolutely yeah right yeah and this you had to travel los angeles boston That's sydney right. sydney yeah. so ideally we, we we should have something like this begin in ireland oh. stay there fiona to bring in sharon Thank you. Sharon, I think your daughter also, Hannah, you, she went to the Napa Centre in LA. And again, how, how did it affect? How did it work? How did it help her? Um, morning, Peter. Morning to you. Um, yes, we went to Napa in LA. Um, I suppose we had experienced um, intensive model before with Hannah with feeding problems and stuff. So when I read up and found out about Napa, it really spoke to me. And when we went there in LA, we were, we were met by a massive building, very much open space and stuff, but it couldn't have been more family friendly. Yeah. It couldn't have been more child-led therapy. As Fiona was saying, it was very individualized. The therapists there, their knowledge and expertise is second to none. Yeah. And the work rate that they do while the children are over there is absolutely amazing. How did you they find out about it? Um, I suppose like everything at the moment, it was through a Facebook group that I was on. So other parents had recommended it through the Facebook group. And I suppose reading up from them and then looking at their own Napa website and their own Napa Instagram and Facebook group, it just really spoke to me. And I suppose the positivity, and it was founded by a mother who herself had a child who had a near-drowning incident. And she wanted the best for her child and wanted her child, like every parent wants, to reach their full potential, live their best life. 
And I suppose that ethos is still very much central to everything with NASA, even though it is an international organisation, that ethos is still very much at its core. Yeah, It does sound so like that it is literally bespoke and shaped with the child in mind. Is it expensive, Sharon? Um, well, I suppose, like, comparable price per hour, it's coming out at about $155, which right. is comparable to private therapy elsewhere. Um, it's expensive in the sense that you're paying for it all up front. As Fiona was saying, you kind of do three to four hours a day, five days a week for three weeks. But I suppose what you gain from those three weeks sure. is comparable. The NASA Centre would state of six to 12 month therapy of doing weekly therapy. Yeah, That's and when it. Hannah came out the other side of it, you, you definitely saw benefit, yeah? Oh, yes, we saw massive benefit in Hannah. And also in what we learned ourselves as parents, we came home so empowered with knowledge ourselves. Right. And I think as well, I suppose, with the pandemic, the silver lining is now that we had telehealth as well. And that, again, was brought into our homes through telehealth. Okay. So to have that ongoing as well and that support, even though we're halfway across the world online, ongoing. Online, online yeah. Yeah, yeah, Fiona, the, 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 there's now... Uh, a is it a definite plan or a proposal to get it's NAPA to Ireland? Plan. We're really lucky. Um, they had thought about coming this year and then, of course, COVID got in the way of that. But they've confirmed their dates for 2022. Um, so they're coming in August next year for six weeks. Right. And they're bringing six therapists with them. And um, they'll be doing two lots of three-week intensives. And each intensive will take between 12 to 15 kids. Right. So we're just, we're getting the word out there because... Fantastic. And where will they be based when they come? Well, that's part of what we're trying to figure out at the moment. Um, it's between Cork and Dublin. Myself and Sharon are definitely in the Cork um, bucket. We would love to bring them to Cork. And also with Napa, whenever they've done these pop-up intensive places, usually if, they, if they're impressed with the place, they will set up a permanent... Um, facility wow. there so we're really we're going to try and make this as great an experience for those therapists and managers and get them to bring Napa to Europe and have Ireland and hopefully Cork as their base because it would make such a difference to our kids to be able to do this regularly without paying for accommodation and flights yeah, of course. to have them here and it would be great for other kids in Europe I've been talking to um parents with my kids condition who live in Spain and Italy and they're both interested in coming to Ireland to do this Now, yeah, there will be a lot of people listening, I imagine, this morning, Fiona who will want to get involved in this August of 2022, how can they find out more, how can they book a place Yeah, so you can go onto Napa's website and they have a registration page and you have to fill in their paperwork by September the 15th, if you don't have it filled in by then you, you won't be eligible for a right. place and there might be a competition for these places so um, it's really important to get your paperwork in now um, we Is the paperwork is there a lot of work in the paperwork? As there really is actually because like I was saying that they, like the, they look at each case as an individual you kind of need reports from all your therapists here and doctors here um, but once you've done it, the next time you go to Napa you don't have to do all that paperwork again Okay. Um, and it just really helps them get a plan together before they even meet your child. So yeah. 
it is important. Yeah. All right. Well, look, at least it's coming and at least it's yeah. a definite plan rather than yeah, just an idea. And, and for you both, thanks for being with us uh, on the programme this morning. Fiona Blake-Walsh and Sharon Galvin, their daughters Zoe and Hannah, have been helped by the Napa Centre. If you want to get involved, if you think it might be of interest or of help to you and your family, uh, you can go to their website, napacentre.org, napacentre.org. Org. Uh, now you must fill in the form of the paperwork there by Wednesday week the 15th of September so I'd advise you get your ducks in a row fairly fast. Any parent in my experience anyway that's campaigning or looking for something or bidding for something for their kid generally has everything they need at their fingertips. You go to napacentre.org. You need to do it by Wednesday week the 15th of September and they'll be coming for six weeks in August of 2022. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie Simon Murdoch and the best music mix. Weekdays from midday on Cork's 96 FM. Afternoons in Cork sound better here. I've got the big tunes from all your favourite artists. Hey, it's me, Justin Bieber. Hi, this is Billie Eilish. What's happening, everybody? It's Tom Gwennon. I'm always good for a prize. Oh, thank you so much. That's brilliant. Thanks a million. And big name stars on the show for a chat. Joel Curry. Personally, Ireland is my favourite place to play. You guys know it's like a second home to me and I miss it so much. In the afternoon in Cork, in the car, at work at home make sure you're with me let me show you what it's all about Simon Murdoch midday to 4pm with McCarthy's House and Home at Douglas Court and Ballancolic Shopping Centres all of great deals on all your interior decor on Cork's 96 FM can we just talk the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now, 1850 715 On Cork's 96FM. Do you remember we had Sarah McKenzie on the show a couple of weeks ago? She's uh, the Cork racing driver and she was looking for sponsorship to carry on her journey in Formula Woman. And at the time, Formula Woman was completely new to me and I think completely new to a lot of listeners. But Sarah was back on to tell us that as a result, or partly at least as a result of our conversation, she has secured sponsorship from Johnson & Perrett Motor Group and Opel Ireland to continue her journey in Formula Woman. And now she said a lot of people have heard about it since the bit of exposure on radio and she wants to thank us for having her on the show. Sarah it was a pleasure and the best of luck to you uh, in your continuing pursuit of Formula Woman success and well done to Johnson & Perrett for coming on board. Quick reminder to you, Premier League Live back this Saturday on 96fm.ie on the web with Trevor Welsh, powered by TalkSport on the web and on the app. Live coverage this weekend, Crystal Palace against Spurs, that's at half 12. Manchester United versus Newcastle at 3 and Chelsea against Aston Villa at half past five. Another busy weekend for Trevor and the team. The Premier League live online with now. Stream live Premier League action with a now sports or sports extra membership. And listen Saturday at 96fm.ie or on the Cork's 96fm app. On the Simon Coveney story 
and uh, Catherine's opponent, Piglet Gate, and all that old nonsense. Uh, Michal Martin's such so weak as a leader, and Finnegale know this. They'll use him to run the country into the ground and then blame Fianna Fáil, says an unsigned message. 1850-715-996. Last week, in the midst of all of this, Sapone and Piglets and hotels and parties and all of that old palaver, the Housing for All document was published. And in what should have been a very big week politically for the government, it, it kind of got lost behind different headlines. And part of it was they intend to spend €4 billion Euro a year on housing over the next few years. And look, the opposition did what the, the opposition do. They picked it apart and they said it won't work. But on the face of it, it all looks like a plan. Now, is it a reheated plan? Is it a, a reheated lunch from from previous plans? I suppose if you look deep enough into it, it probably is. But Evie, you spotted one flaw in particular uh, reading through Housing for All. Good morning to you. Morning, PJ. How are you? Good. One flaw in particular you spotted. Yeah, that there is no real, like, there. there's the usual, we'll do this for people with disabilities. We'll do that for people with disabilities, but with no real commitment behind it. And this has been the case for as long as I can remember. Uh, from my own particular situation, uh, I applied for ground floor housing in 2017. We were approved in 2018. Sorry, sorry. I submitted the form in 2016. We were approved in 2017. Mm. And uh, five years later, we're still not in ground floor housing. There is not enough ground floor housing for people with disabilities. Um, According to, uh, I did a Freedom of Information to Cork County Council, there are currently 351 people with disabilities who are waiting uh, to be housed. 87 of them are specifically looking for accessible housing, uh, adapted housing, should I say. Mm -hmm. And um, like these, like, like myself, these people are waiting years and years and years. Uh, you know, I am privileged to say that I'm only an ambulatory wheelchair user, which means I have the use of my legs, but I do use a wheelchair when I need to. Okay. There are people who are in wheelchairs waiting years to mm-hmm. be housed and in in currently inaccessible housing. Uh, you know, families who have children in wheelchairs and things like that. And there just hasn't been any real commitment to sort out this crisis for people with disabilities in terms of housing. Um, and it's just one other thing that we have to consistently fight for. Um, and it's almost like screaming into the void a lot of the time, you know. Evie, do all, this is coming from someone who, who doesn't have to worry about this, so forgive me. Do all new builds now not have to be accessible by default under building regulations? <clears throat> Yes, absolutely. The new, for example, so Clonakilty just had this massive uh, social housing building project where they've these two or three new estates gone in, right? Which is fantastic and it'll free up a lot of the private market as well and things like that. So um, it looks good. But for people with disabilities, what planners forget is that you will have many households who have more than one person with a disability. So uh, to have... Um, so when the council the council does have bungalows, right? They they've been doing it for years, and you, everybody see them the, in the council estate where there's, you know, a small two bedroom bungalow yeah. for older people or people with disabilities. But they forget that we also have families, and a lot of the time, like for example, I have two children who have inherited my condition, 
Um, you know, so we all need bedrooms downstairs. I sleep most nights on the couch uh, downstairs. My children are falling downstairs more times than I can count and my nerves are shot constantly and mm-hmm. their joints dislocate very easily. Yeah. So obviously um, I'm always very nervous about it. Um, but that's the issue and that there's just no bungalows uh, available for families, um, you know, where, like I said, there's so more... So it's not enough, <laughs> Evie, what you're saying. It's it's not enough to be able to get safely through the front door. It's not enough to have a ver- all the wide doors downstairs or switches low on the wall, all the things that are mm-hmm. all standard now. It's not enough to have mm-hmm. that. You have to build houses and ground floor apartments specifically yeah. for families who use wheelchairs. Yeah, absolutely. And see, the thing is, that there, what happens is that a lot of people and very young people as well, mind you, end up going into nursing homes. Um, and the other thing as well is that um, what ends up other other than putting them in nursing homes, what often happens is that the council ends up having to buy bungalows, which obviously means, you know, sometimes at least double what you'd pay to build a house. Buy them and then so there's no them. kind of like. Yeah, there's no forward planning. You know, there's no forward thinking and there's no uh, joined up thinking when it comes to planning. You know, there's no, okay, there's this many families with disabilities, let's say here in West Cork. Uh, Do we have enough housing for them? When we're building housing, okay, could we throw two, uh, three bedroom bungalows into this new social housing estate? Doesn't happen at all. Um, and it's just, like I said, it's incredibly frustrating and it's mm. always people with disabilities who I'm have sorry, to share their stories. Sorry, you mentioned the new estates and trying to kill tea now and, and you mm-hmm. know, great, great idea. And But for example, are they of any use to you? No, none. No, not at all. Um, you know, it's, it, they're, they're two-storey um, houses and they're just, they just would not suit um, our family. And I've been talking to other families in the area as well who were in a similar position to us, like I said, with children in wheelchairs and things like that. And they're waiting years and years and years for ground floor housing um, and housing that's big enough to to uh, store all the equipment that a lot of children need. Uh, you know, for example, uh, children who are in wheelchairs who would need to be tube fed, all the different medications and different equipment and things like that. And it's like I said, it's, we're just not being thought about, you know, it's it's. It's almost like they think, okay, people with disabilities might have a carer and that's it. But like, we do get married, we do have families, you know, um, and we're just not being thought about. And it's not enough to have wide doors, low switches and accessible kitchens. And that's the thing, like, when I spoke, when I spoke to the, like, because I do pretty much all of the advocating for my family um, and when it comes to this. And, you know, I, I speak to the, the people in, and they've been like, in fairness, the people in housing in the council, they have been really, really understanding and, and being as helpful as they can. But like, and they say to me, OK, so you need ground floor housing. Do you need a, a, a shower room? Do you need the doors widened or anything? Like that? And I'm like, no, <laughs> we just need ground floor housing. There doesn't have to be any yeah. bells and whistles or anything like that. Just somewhere just where somewhere one of us aren't going to fall down the stairs and break our necks. Which, which is, that's a, a, a pretty a, a pretty important consideration. Evie, thank you very much. That's Evie Nevin, a wheelchair user, and her family have uh, inherited her condition, which is Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, EDS. And two of her kids have it, which I didn't know up to now. I'm sorry to hear that, Evie. 1850 715 Let's go to our friend Michal Sheridan at the Irish Community Air Ambulance because this is Air Ambulance Week. Uh, Michal, good morning to you. And hearing some of the... How are you doing? 
I'm good, I'm good. I'm I good. can hear you there. And some of the figures out this week to mark Irish Community Air Ambulance Week, uh, they're stunning. You're, how, how often a day would you guys be called into service now? It can be up to five times a day. So if everybody remembers the really lovely weather we had in, in July that, that week, uh, we were actually out uh, 22, 23 times in eight days. Um, so July was our busiest month. So on average, twice a day, potentially yesterday, for example, three times up to County Clare, down to McCroom, um, and then over towards the east as well. So uh, the east of the country. So it varies, but on average, two, three taskings a day. And every time the chopper goes off the ground with the crew in it, how much does that cost? So our, the way we work it out is our, our running cost for the air ambulance side of the charity is for this year is 1.5 million euro. Uh, we're being tasked on average about 500 times a year. So the cost, the average cost per tasking is about 3,500 euro across the year. So the 3,500 is the, is the answer to your question. Right. And what kind of funding do you get? So we get, currently, we get no government funding, okay? Um, but we are, in fairness to ministers and TDs, and I know even the Taoiseach is aware of us, uh, we, we are due very soon to put in a, a submission for funding to government. Currently, all of our funding is fundraised, um, you know, and we, we have amazing mornings. And, and just to, to share something with you, today is the second day of our ambulance week, and this morning we opened the post and somebody had made an anonymous donation of €75,000. Oh, my goodness. For us is... I know it's just a kind of a game chain, you know, they're the kind of, the numbers we're talking about when we're talking about one and a half million, you know, that kind of donation today really helps. But but we've also had people over the last few days who've been going to our website, communityairambulance.ie, and donating five euro and 10 euro and 50. And that is as important to us um, as those big techs, because we know we we respond to medical and trauma emergencies in the community. And therefore, it is the community where we get yeah. support from um, over the years and you know up and at the moment and you know I even know from look we've been involved with you guys for a long time in other roles and you know I know there's people listening overseas as well who've you know friends and family who are still here and you know we're encouraging everybody this week during Air Ambulance Week to visit our yeah. website uh, or to take part in Wear Red or Yellow Day um, on this Friday or any day during September. Sure that's 75,000 quick scratch your paper here, that's 20 trips that's that's phenomenal uh, donation. Michal the bit that confuses me here is are you or are you not part of the National Ambulance Service? No, we're not it's, we work in partnership with the National Ambulance Service so we we were set, uh, set up as a separate charity and then obviously two years ago uh, launched the Air Ambulance and we effectively became a, a supporter, an asset to to the air to to the national ambulance service, so we're we're a separate charity. Right. We're a bit like a lot of other charities, PJ, in that you know we 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 help to fill a gap, um, sure. a gap that was very clearly evident from the numbers that the taskings that we're doing, and a gap that is clearly evident from our response times uh, to Indeed. taskings, the, the types of places as well we're going to. You know, places like. Glengariff and Iries and, and all those places way out west, um, you know, and even close to home, as I said, McCroom, um, McCroom yesterday. So, um, so we, we are providing we are providing a service that is supporting the state, I suppose. But it's definitely and and it is clearly for us a partnership between ourselves and the National Ambulance Service. Our medical crew on board, 
Uh, today, for example, there's an EMT and an advanced paramedic from the National Ambulance Service. Yesterday, there was two advanced paramedics. So um, it, it's, a, it's, it's very clearly for us a partnership between the two organisations. So, so the, the Ambulance Service is, is staffing it? For you, so they're is. staffing the the medical side yes. of it. The yes. what we provide is the base, the helicopter, the pilots, um, and obviously the infrastructure here up in Rakul, um, the You know the cabins for for the crew to wait for the call to come in. So just explain it, I suppose, really briefly to p- people who may may want to know how yeah. we're tasked. Somebody has a medical emergency or a, a trauma, road traffic collision, falls from a height, has a farming accident. Uh, they, that, the person themselves, if they're able to, or somebody rings 999, um, at that stage they get through to the National Ambulance Service call centre, and then they, as they would for any response, whether it's a road ambulance or the air ambulance, would be asking a series of questions, and the important question they'll always ask everybody is, what's your air code? So it's really important people know their air code, even your kids, that's a really important thing to know. And, and if it's deemed essential by the aeromedical desk, so there's somebody listening on what's called the aeromedical desk, they may look at all of the factors, the location, the distance maybe to CUH or to University Hospital Limerick, if they feel that if it's the type of accident or emergency that needs transport or transfer to hospital quickly, uh, where they are, you know, where the person is based, all those kind of things. And they may at that stage decide that a helicopter is required. And when it's down in, in this part of the country, as in the Munster region, and then they'll ring the base here. Calls get call gets picked up by one of the advanced paramedics. That stage, if if it's a go, then he gives the thumbs up to the pilot. Pilot goes out, turns on the helicopter, and they're in the air in about three minutes. Wow. Um, and then at full speed, they're travelling at about three hundred kilometres per hour uh, to the scene. And then obviously, if they're bringing somebody to CUH, you know, in the case of people in Kerry Cork. And then obviously they're they're winging their way to, to Bishopstown as quickly as possible. Right. And where, as a matter of interest, Michal, where does it land when it comes into CUH? Uh, oh, oh, Bishopstown GA Club. Um, that's, they still, they still haven't put the helicopter pad back in. No, they haven't. But but I think as well, just while while I'm while I'm on, I think one of the things that's really important to say as well is we and we know the Air Corps and the Coast Guard, we really are all appreciative of the fact that Bishopstown GA Absolutely. have given us that facility and we know sometimes even training has to stop if the helicopter has to land. So, you know, it's it's a hugely supportive gesture by, by Bishopstown GA. Fantastic. And, uh, and yes, look, and there's lots of hospitals across the country who who need a proper helipad infrastructure and, you know, hopefully over time as, as people begin to realise the benefits that aeromedicine as in helicopters brings to the country, you know, we can start as well to look at that infrastructure in, in terms of putting pads at hospitals. Come back lastly to the importance of knowing one's air code because I think a lot of people don't and if you have to call an ambulance, whether it be an air ambulance or not, knowing your air code these days is a huge advantage. Oh, absolutely. So what happens here is the air code allows the team here at the base to pinpoint your location um, and then they go. So they pinpoint it on a on a on their iPads here and they have those with them in the helicopter and that becomes their, that's their go-to point. Then what happens is when they get to scene, let's call it, and they land and they're looking to land beside somebody's house or on a roadside, the role then of the pilot and the crew, the crew member who's sitting up front, um, so that could be an advanced paramedic or an EMT, it's then to find, to locate the safest landing zone as close as possible to the person. And that could be a back garden it could be a field at a roadside, it could be a car park that's empty of cars. It, they, they make that decision when they get there, but the ideal is that they land as safely and as close as possible uh, to the person who, who needs 
their attention as quickly as possible. It's a remarkable service. It's a service that none of us would ever want to have to call, but we know that with a team led by your good self, Dermy Hall, a uh, super service will be provided to us at any time we need it. Thank you very much. That's Hall Sheridan, CEO of the Community Air Ambulance, which is based in Rathcool, North Cork. This is Air Ambulance Week. Fantastic donation to them this morning of 75,000 euro. Great advice. Know your air code. Write it down by the telephone at home or keep it stored in your mobile phone as an important phone number. You never know when you might need it. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie the Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. Hear the full show on our app, by podcast, or on 96FM.ie. The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96FM.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan on Cork's 96FM. Oh, it's a gorgeous morning out there now. 18 degrees at 10 o'clock and we're heading into Scorchio territory in the afternoon. 23, 24, 25. Tomorrow, could get some rain tomorrow. Almost certainly get some rain Thursday. Warm and wet pretty much for the next day or two. The weekend, though, looking very promising indeed. Uh, not not high temperatures, but certainly some nice weather uh, looking likely over the weekend. Alan from Carlow Weather was on his Twitter in the last couple of days saying it's very hard to predict accurately now because this Hurricane Larry, which probably won't come near us, is upsetting everything out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. So it's very hard to predict more than a, a day or two in advance, but he's reasonably optimistic for the weekend 1850-715-996 how many times a week would you throw a wet wipe down the toilet you're not supposed to we know you're not supposed to but everybody does it because there's a pair of wet wipes in in most bathrooms and the most natural thing in the world is use the wet use the wet wipe and, and fling it down the loo or fling it down a drain you're not supposed to do that you're supposed to it says you can flush them it says on the packet you can flush them, but you shouldn't, because horrible things happen when you do. Simon Lyons is an engineer with the Cork City Council Water Framework Directive and some pictures on Twitter in the last couple of days of a massive, like a bale, like a big belly, big huge cork formed by wipes blocked up the system. Uh, Simon, good morning to you. Morning, PJ. How Hi. are you? Hi. How, where did where did this happen? And was it a blockage, or, or was it a routine check, or what happened? No, it was very much a blockage on this occasion. It was out in um, by Saint Michael's Cemetery in Mahon. This happened. Right. There was um, basically just a big accumulation of wipes, which I think finally came together into a very challenging blockage for us to clear. Yeah. All it takes is for the one of them to get stuck, isn't it? And then the other ones build up behind it and behind it and behind it. And you use, is it pressurised air you use to, to drive them out? No, on this occasion and most other occasions, it's pressurised water, actually. So okay. I don't know if any of you would have spotted those tankers going around town, the likes of the cork drains and the monster drains and the dino rods. Yeah. But they'll have a tanker of water, which will be 
pumped out at high pressure through kind of jetted nozzles. Mm. And what you do though, you send those down the pipe and you use the jets of high pressure really to just to break up the blockage. Um, but it's extremely rare that we would take eight tanker loads of continuous jetting to, to clear eight a blockage. tanker loads? Good yeah. God. That's it. So how, how big was this blockage? Well, I suppose the pipe is 375 millimetres or about 15 inches in old right. money. And the blockage, as you could, I don't know if you or your listeners saw from the picture, the wipes and the rags which you see on the ground in, that, in those pictures are the wipes which were taken out without releasing the blockage. So I'd say there was probably two or three metres of that length of pipe completely blocked with rags. Good Lord. Like so we, we had the pictures up on our up on our Twitter now. Like on these packets, on most of them anyway, it says flushable or can flush, but you can't, can you really? No, and uh, again, it's it's a very misleading thing. Basically, all that's telling you is it's not going to block your U bend, isn't it? it? It can literally get around the U bend, but it's not taking any account of the the cumulative damage that they're going to do further down the line when they, they all get flushed down, you know, individually and collectively and then come together in, in a blockage like we saw on Saturday. Mm. Now, what's the correct way to dispose of it? Because like I said, any, any house that has children in it uh, is going to have bags, of boxes or packets of these things around the place. And you'd hardly go in the car. You'd hardly go out without a packet of wipes in the car. Like there's millions of them in use every day. Agreed, yeah. And and no, it, sometimes it's not practical to be without them. I suppose the best things you could do if you must use them is try and avoid ones with any plastic in them. And then even if you use ones without any plastic, put them in the bin. Still don't put them down the toilet. Yeah. Um, so just have a bin by the toilet or by the baby changing table or, or wherever you need them. Fire it into the bin and on bin day, tie up the bag and fire it in. So at, at least then they're not blocking the system. Now look, yeah. they're still probably going to go to incineration or landfill but at, at yeah. least the sewer system's not blocking up yeah. and we're not seeing spills like we saw let, on Saturday let, Let's be practical here Simon as the man said no one is going to stop buying these things tomorrow because they're such a useful thing to have around the house but but be wary of how you dispose of them Yeah I, I agree I, I think the main benefit is, is the behavioural change uh, I don't think anyone's going to kind of stop using them especially for, for kids and stuff like that but mm. um if you can just avoid putting them down the toilet, that, that's going to be a major benefit to the sewage system anyway. What, what else should we not flush away while we're on the subject? Anything bulky, really. I suppose, you know, kind of sanitary products. Um, don't flush tooth flush. Don't, don't flush hair. Don't flush those little um, earbuds or cotton buds. Um, we've even seen people flushing nappies down toilets, which... Oh is a major issue because anyone who's used nappies knows that they expand to the size of a balloon once they get wet. So a- anything really which could have a binding effect. So, I mean, I, the principle to follow is the three Ps, which is pee, poo, and paper. Mm-hmm. And that has time to break up and become kind of suspended in the flow, so that's much less likely to cause um, blockages. If you If you can kind of contain yourself to those three things, then neither your domestic sewer, your domestic drainage or the public sewerage should ever really have an issue. Yeah. I guess the other question, like when you had that huge blockage down near St. Michael's with that massive bale of wipes, like where did the rest of the sewage go? What, what happened to it? Yeah, while it was overflowing, you mean? Yeah. 
out into the yeah, street. Yeah, no, totally. Exactly, out into the street and down a gully and out into Loch Mahan, unfortunately. no. On those kind of occasions, obviously that's unavoidable while the team is working on it to clear it. So the way we kind of mitigate that is that then would have been reported to the EPA mm-hmm. and the fisheries in that moment. And then there'll be a report which was put up yesterday uh, to report the incident. And then that will be recorded on our annual environmental return sure. at the end of the year. So You do the best you can under the circumstances. And, and ab- about exactly. how, how long would that blockage have been building up? That's a very good question. Sometimes they can kind of happy happen quite quickly because uh, you know kind of a, a collection of rags in a manhole can shift, and we find that sudden blockages like that can occur in the hot weather because there isn't enough flow pushing it through on a continuous basis. So then suddenly things kind of dislodge in one go. Um, in other occasions, they can occur very slowly, um, and you can kind of have just this escalating effect where. It's not noticed, but the pipe has been kind of slowly but surely blocking until it just completely seals. But it's it's quite rare to have such a big pipe um, block so badly. That's really. a a bit like that's a fifteen inch pipe blocked up with those things. That's <laughs> yeah. that's a lot no. of wipes. Like they're not very big. Well, that's the thing. I mean, like it's the sheer quantity that it took. You know, as in, if you just again the pictures show you, even if you zoom in, you can almost see that there's individual wipes there mm-hmm. but there's thousands of them you know so it, it's and they're the ones that have accumulated there not to mind all the ones that got through and went on to the pump stations the treatment plants exactly well, yeah, what do, I mean what what can they jam up a pump can they do that get can they cause problems in a treatment plant what oh yeah definitely there's big business out in the pump industry trying to get pumps which are basically anti-wipes anti-rags which can kind of process them without getting blocked um and certainly ourselves and Irish Water put a lot of attention into those parts of the network in terms of specifying the right pumps for the environment. And somewhere like Cork City, with a kind of a high concentration population, is a very challenging sewage. So, yeah, they can block pumps, they can block screens, they can cause overflows from either the pump stations or the treatment plants. Um, they can even break pumps, really. You know, if, 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 if a big enough blockage can go in, it can damage it, it can overload, it can burn itself out. So, And, you know, we're not talking cheap pumps here. Even even the cheapest of pumps in the city is probably two or 3,000 euros each. Crikey. Up to anywhere, you know, there's pumps which cost 90,000 euros in, installed in this city. So, yeah, it's a, it's a real challenge, really. Okay, okay. well, th- here's hoping that people will listen to us and not put them down the toilet. Thank you very much. Simon Lyons, he's an engineer with Cork City Council, the Water Framework Directive. The pictures are up on our Twitter of that huge bale, for want of a better word. It's like a hay bale, like a haystack of wipes that it took out of the system. And he said eight tanker loads of pressurised water to blow it free from the pipe. Give me some idea. I, I had occasion uh, on Good Friday to call out Dynarod to uh, Coogan Towers. Nothing serious, just something that had been there in my pipes for a long time. I couldn't get at it myself, and it was just annoying me. It was old earth and dirt from years ago that we never really bothered to clear, and it became a problem because it got caught in a bend. And I worked on it myself for hours and hours and hours and hours. And then I just said, shag it, I'm ringing Dynarod. The guy came out, he took one look, he opened the drain, he said, all right, give me two minutes. And he just literally, it took him two minutes. He got the hose down and he turned on the compressor and gone. So 
eight tanker loads of water to clear that bale of wipe. Please do not put them down the toilet. As he said himself, pee, poo, and paper. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now. 1850-715-996 On Cork's 96FM. Yeah, PJ, if the government did away with the government jet says this message, they could use the money to keep two air ambulances going 24-7. thing about the government jet is, it actually acts as an air ambulance more often than we know. In fact, at the weekend, when certain people were trying to store up a bit of nonsense about Leo, uh, claiming that he used the government jet to go to see Cheryl Cole or whoever it was at that festival in London, he didn't. That was a complete load of bunkum. The air ambulance was actually on a medivac to the UK at the weekend. Does it a lot more than we think. The, the government jet acts as an air ambulance. But good point, good point. It's a disgrace that the air ambulance has to fundraise and that it's not supported out of the health service budget because it's in partnership with the National Ambulance Service. It uses National Ambulance Service personnel for the paramedics and all that. But it gets no funding. It has to fundraise to keep itself going. And that's just wrong. 1850-715-996. Is that Ballina Carrig or Ballina Carriga? Can we just clarify that before I read out that message about the COVID test centre? Here is a new organisation on me, at least. Which, hey, listen, there's plenty out there that I don't know about. But certainly not okay in school Ireland is a new one on me. Faye Hayden, good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. How are you? Good. Tell me again, who set up Not OK in School Ireland and why? So it was myself and another parent, and we've set up a committee then of other um, like-minded parents in the same situation. Also adults with disabilities that have been impacted by this when they were children and young people themselves. And then we have some um, psychologists on board, school principals, teachers, SNAs, um, and some um, legal representation as well, just legal, I suppose, um, informing the campaign of of a solicitor who is um, involved a lot in... um, cases where school placements break down or there's problems with the child um, accessing a place at school. So, And then also Senator Lynn Ruan and TD Paul Murphy have gone involved with us as well. They're offering us their support, which is fantastic. And I know Lu- uh, Lynn Ruan raised this in the Doyle there um, last month around the expulsions of children from special educational needs schools. So this really is looking at children with special educational needs, children that experience what's currently called school refusal, but we think that term is completely wrong and ref- reflects very badly on the child. They're not refusing school. It's just that their anxiety is at such a level that they're just unable to attend because of the environment that they're in. And then this does also impact some marginalised groups as well. So, for example, traveller children who might be on reduced hours at school, and Roma children, variety of different groups, really. So how, how did your own involvement begin? My, I have three children. My middle child, Patrick, um, is autistic. Um, he is 13 in a few weeks and he was going into um, fifth class last year. He, he 
to Lady Year um, and his school placement broke down due to the fact that the school wouldn't allow his behaviour therapist to accompany him in school when he went back after the six months um, after the lockdown. So, and this is a behaviour therapist that the principal had recommended we bring on board to help with some challenging experiences he was having at school and the way that that was presenting in behaviour that was difficult to himself and to others because he was extremely distressed. Um, he has a condition called pathological demand avoidance, which is part of autism for a lot of people. And I've, makes, I've never heard of that one. What's that? Um, it's actually, it's, uh, it's a profile of autism, it's what it's called, and um, it's something that's becoming more well-known and more well-understood, which is when a child is placed is faced with a demand of any kind. And a demand can be anything from going to sleep at night, that's a demand because you know you have to go to sleep, um, to put your shoes on or you have to do these 10 sums, or, you know, it could be anything at all. It's really quite broad, but it creates a crippling anxiety for him. So he might, if we are asking him to do something, feel so anxious that as if he was on a plane that was about to crash. That's the level of anxiety. My son has extreme anxiety to the point that he harms himself very severely. And so so something, something as simple as saying to him, Patrick, take off your jacket and hang it up. Absolutely. Oh, that, that, that's two demands. Oh yeah, of course. I forgot that. Yeah. I should yeah. I should remember that of being a parent in the of a lad on the spectrum myself. Some sometimes that one command at a time or one request at a time is, is too much, yeah. Yeah, and one request at a time is, is really the way forward for, you know, the vast majority of autistic people and, and just to kind of keep it very straightforward. But it's a condition that's only beginning to be understood, really. Um, and we're very, very lucky that we've always had psychologists in the HFC that have a good understanding of it mm. and have been extremely supportive and able to help us. Because, you know, as, as a parent, you do kind of sit there sometimes and think, oh, for God's sake, will you just get on with it kind of thing? And you have to stop yourself and realise that you're putting an expectation on a child that they're just not able to meet. And we have to stop thinking of autistic children and thinking of children whose neurology mm. is different. And how is it how is it coped with, Faye? Because I imagine that could be very difficult, not just at school, but at home. I mean, is there a way to deal with it? You have to provide what's called a low-demand, low-arousal environment. So it's all about how you interact with the child. It's very much about giving them choices. It's very much like, say, for example, the the sleep one was a new one on me. I only real I only read about that in the last maybe three or four months. Um, and when you when you read something on it, you suddenly think, oh yeah, well that actually makes a lot of sense. So instead of telling him it's time to go to sleep, we have to now say to him, oh, it's time to go to bed. And he'll go to bed and he'll read or he'll maybe look at his phone for a while, which is against, you know, what I would normally do. But you just have to completely rethink the way you parent a child. We have to think differently about the way we interact with children who think differently. Okay. And that's, that's a big change for all of us. That must make um, school very hard, though. It was unbearable and it got to the point where he was so distressed and the support that he was expecting to have wasn't allowed into the school. It had to go through a large process of going through the Board of Management and then the Irish um, Council for the National School of Ireland, National School of Ireland. And, you know, it did not say it would never have been allowed, but it was a huge process that we were being put through and he just wasn't able to cope. And he was so distressed. By the day I collected him on day six, which was the decision that we, the day we had to make the decision for what was right for the mental health of our child and for all the other children in 
staff in the school. He was so distressed, I collected him and he was hysterical. He could barely breathe. He was like a caged animal. And it, it was just horrible to see. And I, I wouldn't put my child through that anymore. Yeah. We had to make the decision to remove him from school. It must be very hard on a teacher too, though, Faye. Oh, exceptionally hard. Exceptionally hard. And, you know, we are very... Um, we want to absolutely collaborate with teachers and school staff. We don't want to put them and all the children in the school in a position where their health and safety is compromised. Mm-hmm. You know, absolutely not. And that's why it's so important that we work with them to get a better understanding of what all of these children need and to create environments in those schools that, that those children can, can survive and then thrive. Because it's a win-win for everybody then. It's not just about the child. We're all, every parent on this campaign committee wants our child to have an education. We recognise they have a right to an education, but not at the detriment of anyone else's education or anyone else's health and safety. We're absolutely not about that. We're not a group of screaming parents that are saying, well, you must do this, you must do that. It's very collaborative. It's yeah. very much approach that we want to take with the teachers, with the SNAs, with the principals, and to help them understand. Because we, we have a mixture. We come across some um, school staff that are just not interested, and it's their way or no way, and that's very much an attitude that's out there. But it's luckily in a minority. But when we have a lot more of is teachers, principals, SNAs that are trying to provide the right environment, but it's systemic failures, and they're just not being given the resources they need to be able to do that, whether it's the right building, whether it's the right staffing levels, whether it's the right training, and that's what we're trying to address. Yeah. And we met with Minister Jacinta from Adigan recently, and we've asked her to set up a cross-agency um, working group, because this is also a child welfare and a child protection issue, so Tuesla need to be involved in this. This is an issue around mental health, and at times... How come, how come it's a Tuesla matter, just a matter of interest? Because it's a child wellbeing issue, because you have a lot of children that are at home with a mental health condition and they're getting no support and there's a lot of suicidal ideation there's a lot of um, self-harm for example autistic children are 28 times more likely to either attempt suicide or experience suicidal ideation where's that where's that from that that figure Faye? it's from autistica.org okay Okay. No, I've, never, I've never heard it before. My son is 23 and I've, all of his peers will be in their 20s. I've never heard a figure like that before. Yeah, and, and autistic people are nine times more likely to die by suicide. And again, autistic.org is where you'll find that information. And, you know, we're very happy to share our campaign document with anybody. That information is contained in there. And all of the sources for the information that we um, that we provide, you know, is always available. We're, we're not going to just, you know, we're very serious about this. We're not just pulling random figures out the air. I heard you talking there about the situation with Leah Radko at the weekend with all these unsubstantiated reports about him using the jet going around. We don't want to be in a position where we're just making stuff up and flinging figures out there. Every all the pieces of information we have are statistics from reliable and factual sources. Okay. No, the only reason I asked you where it came no, from is, no, no, obviously, no. a statistic like that mm-hmm. might might strike fear into the minds of many a parent listening to me this morning who had a child in the spectrum, and I wouldn't oh, like to frighten them, you know? But it's also something that, it, not that it should strike fear in the hearts of us, but it should strike action. We need. I've dealt with this. I've watched my son attempt suicide almost 20 times, and he's not even 13 oh, yet. Oh dear. Okay. So you know this. That's why we are fighting for this. It is that serious. The experiences that young people have as young people can create massive trauma in their lives and can massively impact their mental health both now and in the future. And that's why Tusla need to be involved. That's why the HSE need to be involved. Because it also has a knock-on effect to siblings. You know. Yes. 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 Because it it affects an entire. About how many kids? 
do you think are in a situation where a, a placement has broken down for one reason or another in school? Well, that's the, one of the biggest problems, PJ. There are no numbers. We've been asking Josefa Madigan this for, for several months now and she cannot give us those numbers. What we can tell you is that over 700 children at the moment are receiving what is called a school a home tuition grant because they're out of school for that yes, reason yes. but it's estimated that that figure is at least four times higher and there are a lot of children I'd say they're at risk of that they're the children that maybe their school placement hasn't completely broken down they go in a bit they come home they go in a bit for a day they come home they go in two days the next week they can't do the rest so it's a, and those are the situations that we want to see Madigan to be addressing, to set up this working group so that they can have a process in place when this is happening, we can look at it and say why and let's do something about it. We cannot move forward if we don't address what is holding us back. And that is a huge, huge issue at the moment. And it's so very much about focusing for young people about not what is wrong with the young person, but what is wrong for the young person. Because my son is now in an environment that we've managed to set up for him. And I'd say we're one of few families in the country that have been able to secure this through fighting and fighting and fighting at the detriment of our own health, to be honest. But my son is in an environment now where he is absolutely thriving, What's called following what's called an unschooling model. And that's more child-led, and it means that there is just more scope for him to if something becomes too demanding or too anxiety. Uh, it, it's putting him in control. And how does, how does that work? I mean, do you do that at home, or have you found a place for him somewhere? We have the home tuition grant, which is for 20 hours a week. And okay. I'm very lucky that I found um, a lady called Denise Corbett, who runs the Leitrim School of Art. And she is just an exceptional woman. She has She's a trained secondary school teacher, but she also has additional training in um, advanced edu- enhanced education, which is particularly in the focus of, of people with special educational needs. So she runs an art school in Leitrim and Patrick goes to her every day. And we also have an agreement with the HSE in Tusla because of the level of experience and the level of harm Patrick has has placed upon himself that means that he goes there for the vast majority of the year. He gets two weeks off in the summer and two weeks off at Christmas. But that's only until next year. So then we're being told by the Department of Education they want to send him back to school. And we have been through absolute hell for three years when he was at school. Patrick is an individual and our family as a whole. And we're now trying to fight with the Department of Education to say, why are you trying to put him back in an environment that we know doesn't work and take him from an environment that we know he is absolutely thriving in? And he has a carer with him as well, um, Connie. She is just... She's, you know, she's one of these earth angels. We could not live without oh, Connie. Yeah. Oh, you, you find one of those, you cling on oh, to him. That's it. We wanted to move in. We we're considering she's hoping to go travelling in the future, and we're like, no, we're going to lock you in our shed and make you stay. <laughs> yeah, um, we, we had somebody like that one time too. I can tell you, Faye, and they're 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 gold when they land at your feet. They're gold. If any, I imagine that many people listening have been found themselves in a similar situation to you and uh, not okay in school ireland is on facebook and is. not okay.ie is that a twitter handle uh, no that's not we're trying to get that up and running but my twitter handle is bedtime stories for mothers and others and um, so you can follow me on that and there's a lot of updates from there oh we also have our email if people want to get into contact with us because we're putting a file together for the minister of all these different individual cases it's quite upsetting to be honest i've been reading through so many of these cases in recent weeks mm. and it's really shocking to hear how some children are being treated in this day and age and that is open book comes so it's C-O-M for mother, S 
at gmail.com. So that's openbookcoms at gmail.com. And myself, Laura Sanchez, whose son was um, expelled last year from a special educational needs school, who... Um, she and I are the co-chairs and we will make sure that your email gets responded to. And, you know, it's a great space as well to share resources, to share ideas. And a lot of people haven't heard of the kind of education my son is now receiving. Yeah. Um, and I'm more than happy to share that with people. And I run a process, what's called Fixed Safety Points, which is from a guy with PDA called Harry Thompson. He's an absolutely fantastic advocate and educator for families like ours. Um, and I've learned so much from him. And it's about how we create those fixed safety points where a child can can feel safe because that's what it's all about is a child feeling safe in their environment and when we achieve that they can achieve anything it's 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 fascinating to hear more about uh, pda uh, as it's almost when you think about it it's almost a child who is terrified pathologically terrified of being asked to do something which must be an awful difficult way to live and, and as parents, you know, we kind of think, oh, they're just being, we, if you, when you don't understand, we think, oh, they're just being bold or they're just being difficult. And other people would dismiss it that way, yeah. They absolutely would, yeah. But we know better than that now, PJ. We know, we know that this neurology is different and yeah. we need to rely on our educators and those that are supporting our educators to do better. Okay. You know, my, I absolutely love Maya Angelou and my, one of my favourite quotes of her is, from her is, do the best you can until you know better. And when you know better, do better. And we know better now, so it's time that we did better by our children. Okay. Okay. Listen, a very interesting conversation. Thank you for being with us on the opinion. And Faye Hayden of Not Okay in School, Ireland. Uh, Faye Hayden, 18. You'll find her on Twitter, Bedtime Stories for Mothers and Others, and many other ways. If you are a parent of a child who you think Faye's story, you identify with it, then... She'd love to hear from you, and so would I. I've never come across this before. PDA, pathological demand avoidance. A simple thing like asking a child to put on your shoes or or take off your jacket or get me a knife out of the drawer. Simple things can... they, They terrify a child. I've never come across that before. If anybody else has come across it and would like to share, eighteen fifty seven one five nine nine six. Just had a visitor in studio. I'll post a photograph in a little while. Um, a man that's been on the program a couple of times with me, and I saw his face down about two studios down through all the glass, and I said, "That's not, is it?" And yes, it is. You'll wonder who now. I'll tell you in a while. 1850 Caller says, as you're on the topic of autism, could I have a special mention for Caroline Manley Lyons of St. Aidan's? She's an SNA who was sent down from heaven. It's a pity there aren't a hundred of her. She's absolutely great. Well, as I've said many times, and I will say many times again, SNAs, a good SNA changes lives. Just changes them. Let alone helps, let alone changes lives. So keep a hold of her. Tie her down. Don't let her go anywhere. <laughs> Staying with uh, matters, similar matters, and then go to Claire Desmond, who's at the Children's Therapeutic Play Centre. Uh, Claire, good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. How are you? Good. And before I talk to you about the terrible twos and the wobblers and the toddlers and all that, have you ever come across that P, uh, that, that PDA? That's right, yes, uh, pathological demand avoidance. Um, I actually have, as you may be aware, I am the founder and director here of Jack and Friends Centre yes. for Autism in Bandon. Um, Jack, my son, whose age was the inspiration behind that, 
And at the moment, we are looking to get Jack assessed for PDA. Um, can you believe? So I was very interested in listening to Faye Hayden's um, uh, conversation with you earlier. It was very interesting. And it's great that she's, she's you know, catching the bulls by the horns and going straight ahead there, you know, fighting it because um, school is not for everyone. And a child that presents for PDA will find school extremely challenging. And so will the family as a whole unit. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a very it's a, as I said, the first time I've heard it explained as well as Faye has explained it, and and the, the idea that a child is terrified by a simple request to do a simple everyday thing that that must be so difficult to work with. Absolutely, and for Jack, you know, he as we spoke before about Jack's um, self-interest behaviours and other topics um, in the past on air. Um, Jack's um, self-interest behaviours now we are starting to investigate that might be relating to PDA okay. the simple tasks such as putting on his shoes or you know Jack as you know is um, incontinent so he's still being nappies um, he's not in a position yet to be taller trained however even you know changing his nappy asking him to pick up something on the floor and um, getting dressed is just a nightmare for both Jack and us it's it terrifies him you know you can see he's in constant distress at every request that's put his way so, so, so hard to, to take on board the, the implications of that. Let's talk about the, the the workshop you've got coming up, though, later in September about wobblers and toddlers and terrible That's twos. Right. Talk That's to me about right. that. So my workshop is September the 23rd. It's currently online. Uh, this will be my third time delivering the workshop to parents. And it's a perfect time because a lot of wobblers and toddlers are still at home while their older siblings are going off to school. So mum and dad might be working at home. And you have the wobbler toddler running around looking for your attention. Now, I know what a wobbler, I know what a toddler is. What's a wobbler? A wobbler would be um, a wobbler. I suppose think about somebody that ha- can't walk yet, um, but tr- holds on to furniture. Oh, I like call them a, a minute. They're just a minute. <laughs> 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 they can climb like Pat Falvey, but they can't quite yes. walk yet. Exactly that. <laughs> exactly that. Oh, That's yeah. Right. And if it's 10 foot high, it's not high enough. They'll no, find a way to no. get at it. <laughs> That's it. They, they, have their, they, they see their goal and they're going to get it and nothing's going to stand in their way. Yeah. And, and it's a difficult time in any household, the terrible twos and the terrifying threes and the ferocious fours and the fearsome fives. <laughs> absolutely, it's never ending. <laughs> never ending. And, you know, <laughs> and I'm absolutely, um, I agree with you because, you know, the terrible twos, if you're, if you're prepared for the terrible twos, now you're, you know, you'd, you'd be prepared for the terrible teens. At the moment I'm working with teens and I'm, I'm coaching parents to, um, you know, raise their self-esteem and, to basically look at teens as being terrible teens, like the terrible twos. You're relieving that kind of, those years of the power struggle. Yeah. You know, you're the authoritative figure. No, I'm the authoritative figure. And it's really, it's really, you know, about autonomy, really. And the, the toddler is saying, I'm big enough, you know, I'm, I'm capable enough to make my own decisions. If I want to wear this dress going out in the minus two degrees temperature, I'm going to go out and I'm going to wear this dress. And, you know, if you don't give me my way, I'm going to fall on the ground and kick and scream and yell and shout until I get my way. So it can be a very difficult time for parents, a very challenging time. The old way was that you'd look at that and say, look, they'll grow out of it. And and you just have to put up with it for a while. That's right. And for a lot of people, that did work out. But but there's got to be an easier way. Absolutely. And, you know, ignoring it and putting up with it. Yes, it does work out because, of course, it keeps you in the green zone, which is a nice calm zone, and you're ignoring the behaviour. However, what happens is a child 
um, during those kind of toddler years is really looking for reassurance and validation. And they also need their feelings and emotions to be validated. And it may not have been the case back then, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Um, the phrase, you know, name it, detain it wouldn't have existed, you know, expressing what your child is experiencing so that they can mirror that experience in you. So, for example, a child that is having, you know, absolute tantrum in the supermarket, we really need to look at the behaviour. But behind the behaviour, there's always a need and that need could be being hungry, tired, you know, overwhelmed, just too much stimuli. And underneath that need, there's a feeling. They could be exhausted. They could be feeling, you know, despair. There's so much more going on beneath yeah. the behavior. And it's about really digging down and using what I call like the DAA. So it's playing detective for D. So you're looking at what, you know, what is the need here? What are they looking for? And what are they feeling? And it's about examining the, the situation and the environment that the child is in yeah. before reacting. I spoke to a psychologist I, one time who, who wore a T-shirt all the time. What the F? And of course people said, what you <laughs> what's the function? And her theory was every function of the human condition from the day we're born to the day we die, has everything has a function. And if you can suss out that function, you're halfway to sorting out the problem. Absolutely. And it really is the function is really, the, you know, the behavior. It, it, it's serving a purpose. Um, it may not be giving the, the toddler what they need, but it's serving a purpose for them. So it's really about, you know, looking behind the behavior and saying, what is the need here? OK, they're screaming because they want that chocolate bar. Would they normally react like that if you said no to a chocolate bar? Perhaps they're overtired. Did you just pull them from daycare and go shopping? So maybe there was too much stimuli in daycare. There was a lot of interaction with other children and they're just exhausted and you're, they're inside in a busy supermarket and they're a little bit overwhelmed. So perhaps, you know, delaying that supermarket visit until after a nap. Yeah. So it's just really looking at what's going on behind the behaviour. Um, but it takes time. And PJ, I always say to parents, you know, it's it, to kind of there's this particular saying that I think is, is very valid. And it's, you know, my child is not giving me a hard time. They're having a hard time. Yeah, yeah. And it's about looking at it from that stance because we very much are a reactive species. So we react to, you know, anger and frustration. And especially with our children, we can get very frustrated. Yeah which is absolutely acceptable. I have often we, said, Claire, that there, there's no book, there's no, you get a child put into your hand or your arms in the maternity hospital and the first thing I looked for was the instruction book. There, there isn't manual. one, but we can learn skills from each yes. other over over the course of, of, of you. Like, can you play your way through the terrible twos? Um, yeah, you can. You certainly can. There's so much uh, information out there. You really can. But it's really about looking at yourself, PJ, as a parent, as an adult, you know, and understanding what your trigger is in all this. And when I say that is that, you know, we, we, we look at neuroscience, and I'm not going to go into all the, the detail of it, but if you look at neuroscience, and it's about getting needs met and the brain, you know, and the, the, the neurons, and if you look at a child's uh, brain as a two-story house, okay, so you have the upstairs brain and you have the downstairs brain, okay, so the downstairs brain is responsible for emotions and blinking and all these kind of uh, functions, and the upstairs brain then is responsible for planning, decision-making, self-awareness, all these kind of things. But when a child is going through, I suppose, the terrible twos, as we would call it, up to the age of 12, their upstairs brain is still under construction. So it's not actually mm -hmm. finished yet constructing. Mm -hmm. So what happens is a child may feel angry, sad, and they can't express it. 
they don't know the words they don't know what's your happening child's in their body. Is, your child's brain is basically a building site how, how can people sign up for your for your course uh, Claire? so how to sign up is they just pop onto the Facebook page uh, the Children's Therapeutic Play Centre and there will be an Eventbrite link there also I've passed on uh, my leaflet to Fiona I'm sure she'll post it up on your Twitter Excellent. and we'll be going into more detail about strategies especially screen time uh, strategies for reducing screen time which I know every parent wants to know Okay, because Peppa Pig has become the babysitter absolutely <laughs> Okay, it's all on the Twitter now and it's all on the social media thank you for that Claire Desmond from the Children's Therapeutic Play Centre you'll find them on Facebook and that event is on the 26th of August but it will be recorded so you can watch it also at a time that suits The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. Hear the full show on our app, by podcast, or on 96FM.ie. The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96FM.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan on Cork's 96FM. We are getting calls from people um, who have kind of pricked up their ears at the sound of the condition known as PDA this morning, which is an element of autism. And I have to say, I had never heard it both either defined or described as well as both Faye and, and Claire did this morning. Um, but it's, it seems to be a, a real problem and we've got one or two people on the phone one or two of them quite upset about it uh, and the fact that it, it, to put a name on it and a label on it and identify it is, is a really serious thing so if we if we do more on it uh, you'll be the first to know 1850-715-996 there's a comment in there yeah Diana was on to say anyone going to the COVID walk-in test centre at Ballinacarriga in Dunmanway uh, there's a huge queue for the walk-in test. You just turn up, which is a great community test. You just turn up with no appointment. It's to find people who are infectious in the community. But the waiting time is about one hour. Anybody with an appointment can drive in at their given time. Uh, but then online booking is full for today. Anyone who doesn't have an appointment needs to join the massive queue of cars. But at least... The sun is shining, which is is no bad thing. So that's the vaccination or the test. Is it a test centre or a vaccination? Vaccination centre, I take it, at Ballinacarriga in Dunmanway. Sorry, I thought it was a test centre. It's vaccination centre in Ballinacarriga. 1850-715-996. Talking earlier on this morning about wipes in the drains and the problems that they can cause underground. But overground, the litter is all too visible. Why on you were you were heading in towards the shop, were you this morning? Good morning to you. Yeah, morning, PJ. Um yeah, I was just walking along the side of the river and I mean there used to be a um a tent in that point where I took the picture, but I mean now it's just a high fence and it is packed with litter. Now I'm I'm from just to clear this, I'm not blaming City Council for this. They can take the blame for not cleaning it, but you know, they're not the ones going around throwing litter everywhere. Yeah. I mean, this is the we, place on Patrick's Quay where there used to be... A, just what, after the first bridge, just after the Brian Bridge. Right. There used to be, a, for want of a better term, a tented village down there a year or two ago. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And now it's become um, and basically I, a fenced-off bin. 
yeah, basically it's a fenced off bin and people just shove their litter through it. I mean, there's there's a pile of it. I mean, it's, it's you know, and and like, you know, that that's that's one of the routes that people walk down the side of the river coming from the train station. Tourists walk down that way. You know, that's not a local walk necessarily. That's Dozens of buses a day come in. Dozens of buses a day come down that, that route and that's their view as they sort of come in towards the city centre. It's just a pile of litter. I mean, littering in the city centre is, is a constant... Mm. You know, people throw it behind our flower boxes. They throw it behind Pinocchio. They, you know, there's bins within 10, 15 metres of us, but don't seem to make any great difference to anyone. We got more bins put in during the summer because so many people were gathering in, in the open air. We got the bins, loads of them. Yeah. And in fairness, and I say this time and time again, Wyon, we have a great crew that go around every morning early. Oh, and I mean, the place, generally, it's spotless. Yeah. You know, first thing in the morning, it's spotlessly clean. So, you know, it isn't city council that are throwing litter around. You know, it's our, our proud citizens yeah. trashing the place. You know, I, I don't know. Litter is one of my pet... <laughs> I think a lot of people would agree with you. Well. Yeah, you know, and I, I just I just don't get it. I don't get how you can be proud of your city and just chuck litter on the ground. I just, I don't get it. I don't, it, it doesn't... Doesn't make any sense. Well, it's it's a long running saga on the program where I'm always saying to people, just bring your stuff home. Do you know? It's bring just it home. It's not difficult. If the bin is full and you can't put it in the bin, put it in your pocket for a minute. You know, there'll be another bin in, you know, a few walking paces from where you are. It's not difficult. You can hold on to it in your hand. I mean, my father would have killed us if he saw us putting anything anywhere other than the bin or our pockets. Yeah. You know, and in those days, there wasn't very many bins around. I mean, it wasn't, you know, nowadays, in truth, there is quite a few bins. And mm. yeah, you can say sometimes they're not emptied quick enough. But I mean, you know, there's only so quick they can be emptied. And again, walk for a few paces. Keep it in your hand. Yeah. yeah it's just you know, laziness. It's just laziness. I mean, it's, you know, putting it, putting it behind our flower box. I mean, you can go to the trouble of walking over to the flower box and shoving it in behind it. Or through somebody's grill. I mean, I noticed on the stairs next to us now, there's two crisp bags this morning stuck into there. There's like little, like little curves of metal, like a rolled tube, and they've stuck it into them <laughs> rather than walk to a bin. Yeah, and your little flower box is there in front of the shop. They put stuff in behind that. Yeah, yeah, frequently into it sometimes. Cigarette butts into it quite frequently. Smokers, I don't know, smokers don't seem to think that they're producing litter at all. And, and they put their cigarette butts into the, into the flower boxes. Mm. Which I just, I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, it's, it's infuriating and you're it's the one who has to come out, come out and clean it. it, it it's it's yeah, disrespect yeah. For, for someone else's it's disrespect, property. You know? I mean, it's probably, uh, of the eating out, it's probably the only slight negative is that you do get a bit of blowing around of, of tissues from various um, restaurants and fast food joints. Mm. But to be honest, most people clean them up and around us, most most places are incredibly quick to clean up around themselves. Because so, you're busy you know. around there, a lot of eateries around there, a lot of pubs are in there. And Aye, there's a lot of there's a lot of traffic here at the moment. I mean, it's been like that that eating out thing has been fantastic for for our area for Huguenot Quarter in general. Yeah. It's, it's made it, it's given it such a nice, you know, continental sort of a better description. And, and a boost when it was needed. And a boost when it's needed. And I hope I hope people realise that eating out is nice. Even in the middle of winter, eating out is perfectly pleasant. They do it in the most of Northern Europe, so um, I hope it sticks. Yeah, okay. Actually, <laughs> to some 
while I have you there, and you, you've talked yeah. to me many times about the, the plight of being a trader in the city centre, and particularly during lockdown, how hard it was. Are things coming back, Wyon? Uh, oh, I think definitely. I, I, for us, definitely. I, I can see there's a, there's a huge level of support still. Um, you know, obviously our online stuff has declined as, as through the shop has gone on, but we've also gained because people are coming in now who have bought online and are coming to visit. Fantastic. So I think in general there's a there's a there's a good feeling of positivity around. Good. You know, um, from the restaurants, from us, from the bars. Good, good. And with one hundred and nine days to Christmas, you need that positivity. Ah. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> you didn't think I'd drop that number on you today. <laughs> hundred and nine days. Yeah. Well, we're already getting Christmas delivery, so we've had. I think we've got our third one in now. So. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. All right, listen, Moyan, thanks for being there. Uh, the that's Moyan Stansfield from the wonderful. Pinocchio's in Paul Street but he sent us pictures and he called us about litter down where they used to have the tents do you remember the tents it's a couple of years ago now there were some homeless people living in tents along the quay there on Patrick's Quay and look that came to its its natural end as these things do but it's fenced off at the moment because there's a lot of work going on down in the quay and it is literally a skip people have turned it into a skip they're throwing all their rubbish into it and it's 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 contemptible. And baby wipes from earlier on, talking to Simon, the engineer, the fella from the corpo wasn't long in pointing out how the baby wipes will affect rain drainage. Here in Blackpool, there are six shores blocked up with dirt. When it rains, the water whizzes over them. They were reported to the council October 2020, so the rescue to rain drainage seems to differ a lot between when it's your problem and theirs. If the drains are blocked for a year due to their non-maintenance, it doesn't matter a bit. A temporary blockage from baby wipes is the end of the world. Well, that was nothing like a temporary blockage, Tom. If you look at the photograph of the haystack size wedge of baby wipes that they got out of it, and that picture is from what they got out before they had to bring in the, the, the pressurised water. Uh, does anybody know, there's a question. Uh, I've never been asked this before, and... You put your head up again. Yeah, they're right. Why are there so many few male SNAs? That's a good question, and I have no idea why. Is it a profession that males don't go into, or what? Why are there so few male SNAs? And just one last bit of clarification, and that's a COVID test centre at Ballinacarriga, not a vaccine centre. Okay, test centre. Not a vaccine centre. But whatever it is, it's very busy. So be prepared to wait. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. All the stars on one show. This is Dua Lipa. Hi, this is Tiesto. Oh, hey, this is Shane Conn. Hey, this is Anne-Marie. Hey, it's me, Justin Bieber. This is Joe Corey. I go by the name of The Weeknd. The Hit Mix with Shane Bucks on your radio. Weeknights from 8. With Newmarket Motors Volkswagen. Test drive the all-electric ID4 at Newmarket Motors. Or visit newmarketvolkswagen.ie for more. Cork's 96FM. <laughs> Supporting Cork all the way in this Sunday's All-Ireland Camogie Final. Cork's 96FM. 1850-715-996. Um, 
yeah, that that is a that is a testing centre at Ballinan Carriga, not a vaccine centre. Just in case there's any confusion there, eighteen fifty seven one five nine nine six. Now we we haven't seen him, or he hasn't been seen, or we haven't had a new photograph of him in a wee while, and we don't know whether he's still actually even around or not. <sighs> Yeah, Wally. Because he was quite happily sleeping on top of any boat that would take his weight and around West Cork and down around Ardmore and he's been on a tour of Europe for, for the last few months and people were worried about him because he was injured the last time that we were talking about him. Is he still even there? Uh, Melanie Cross is with Seal Rescue Ireland. Melanie, good morning. Good morning, thank you for having me. Good uh, do we know where he is now? Is he still with us? Well, it's been an interesting morning. Um, this morning I woke up to an update that there was a walrus spotted on the German coastline, and it looked very similar. And so we actually thought, you know, he hadn't been spotted in Ireland since the 28th of August. So that's, what, 10 days ago. Um, but we've actually been comparing photos, and this is a different walrus. So um, we do think that this is actually becoming a trend, um, that more and more Arctic species are going to be coming down and exploring new habitats. So although we don't know where our walrus, uh, Wally, is, um, like I said, he hasn't been spotted in West Cork since um, the, the 28th of August, but he was in good shape. His body condition was good. He was resting, enjoying the sun. He did have a, a few superficial cuts on his slippers. One was bleeding, but, you know, these are really, really tough animals. They've got yeah. thick skin, thick blubber, so it's nothing life-threatening, but this is also a really handy way to be able to tell individuals apart. So we were comparing his scars to the one in, in Germany and a different walrus. Yeah. Well, what, does, what does that tell you? Melanie, about, about about the strange times we live in? Yeah, I, I would say it's very, it, this is unusual. This is not something that we should be seeing in our waters. Um, you know, this walrus had gone down as far as Spain. Um, so he's, he's very much confused and lost, and he's not alone. Uh, the second walrus also appears to be a juvenile, very, very short tusks. So it could be that um, that once they're separating from their mothers after the first few years, they're just getting lost. And due to you know sea ice melt, um, there, there's no longer that habitat that they've relied on for thousands of years. So um, we are going to be seeing more and more Arctic vagrants um, in addition to walruses, hooded seals, ringed seals. Um, all sorts of things. Our bearded seals are, are popping up along our mm. coastline. So um, we don't have any blanket pinniped protection. Um, we only have our listed native species, gray yeah. seals and uh, common seals. So Seal Rescue Ireland is in, in support of a petition that's been started by Orca Ireland, um, and they are calling for uh, the protection of just all pinnipeds in, our, in Irish waters um, because we can't expect that we're going to be seeing more. Mm. And you'd hate to think that Wally, or indeed his cousin, who's now in Germany, would would be in danger. Well, they seem to adapt pretty well. I mean, this is obviously, this is strange times, and we've got, you know, even our native species in Ireland are struggling with climate change due to the severe storms. Mm. But for the last five months, since Wally's been in European waters, his condition has done well. Um, He's been observed feeding and resting. Of course, we don't have his 
sea ice that he likes to rest mm. on. But like you said, he's pretty opportunistic. He'll climb up on ribs and pontoons and boats, and he seems to be all right. So mm. I think that what we need to do is start looking at this as, you know, these are climate refugees, and um, they're going to be approaching our shores, and we just sort of need to be ready to um, to be able to, to accommodate them and protect them and, and not add, you know, more stress to them by approaching them, harassing them, yeah. treating them like they're entertainment because they're not. They're just simply trying to, to survive. And with less than 22,000 Atlantic walruses left in the world, every individual is really important. Mm. So we just need to prioritize that and kind of take that away from, um, you know, what we're seeing happening in the wild is that these wild animals are being impacted. So we really do need to do what we can to start fighting the biodiversity and yeah. climate crisis. The, the, um, this is whole. definitely climate change in action, the fact that they're down here. It's got to be. It's got to be. I mean, we've lost what, 30, 40 percent of Arctic sea ice um, in the last 40 years, and it's increasing. It, it's actually happening quicker every year than anticipated. So it is dire. And this is a wake up call for us. So, um, you know, if, if it's happening to walruses now, you know, what's next? There, There's really no telling what the future impacts of climate change are going to be. So we really need to wake up to this situation and teach, treat it like the priority that it is. And treat the and treat these animals with respect and care, and not as tourist attractions. Absolutely, and I will add that I've spent um, the last week down in Crookhaven, and I was blown away by the locals and just how supportive they were, and how much they wanted to prioritize the protection. So I would say that there is a lot of people that do understand this and really, really do care about wildlife conservation, and it's just a few people that you know kind of um, that that don't understand that, but the vast majority do. But it only takes a handful of people to really have dire consequences. So because you know, remember, this, this is a one hundred and twenty-six stone giant you don't want to get too close anyway even though he mightn't be very aggressive you don't want to get caught with him near him when he's flopping around in the water Exactly. He could do a lot of damage even accidentally. And there were some people observed getting dangerously close to him. And I think it's just kind of one of those things where one person does it and then the next person pushes it a step further and then a step further. Um, So we just kind of all need to, you know, put that social pressure in place where, you know, if you see someone doing something that's irresponsible and might put wildlife or themselves in danger, Mm. you know, speak up because this is this is something that we're going to be seeing more and more of more interactions with wildlife between, you know, due to habitat loss. Okay. So um, we just need to learn how to do it respectfully and responsibly and then really, you know, treat them like uh, the, the victims of climate change that they are. And, okay. you know, we're, we're all victims of climate they're, they're, change. They're, vi- they're visitors and they're, and they're very, very welcome, even though they're way, way out of their comfort zone. Thank you very much. That's Melanie Croce from Seal Rescue Ireland. We don't actually know, if I'm to understand... Melanie, where Wally is right now, uh, he hasn't been seen since the 28th of August around West Cork, um, but, but we assuming he's still around somewhere. And uh, that was his cousin, uh, Wilhelm, on his mother's side, or was it Wolfgang on his dad's side, around uh, German waters. So there's a couple of them down here. Now, someone like Wally visits us and stays around long enough, somebody will come up with a business venture. Aidan O'Sullivan, good morning. Morning, PJ. Uh, you have a whole new business venture, Wally the Walrus T-shirts. Yes, yes. So we have um, Wally the Walrus T-shirts and Wally the Walrus mugs. Um, and I suppose the important part is um, it's less of a business venture and more of a way to try to 
you know, collect some money for Sea Rescue Ireland uh, and support Wally. So 10% of profits go straight to Sea Rescue Ireland. Um, but yeah, we designed the t-shirts and mugs. I'm joined here by Audrey. She's uh, my girlfriend. She designed it all herself. Um, and yeah, I suppose it's just a way, obviously, we were really interested in, in Wally when he came. And it's just a way for us to show our support and get some money to, to the people that are helping him. Have you seen him? No, we were always kind of, we, we had some close encounters. We were in Valencia when he first appeared and we were intending on going to Crookhaven while he was still there, but obviously now he's he's gone gone missing. So, But no, we we really want to, I think we need to pay a pilgrimage to him really when, when he pops up again, wherever it may be. So. Yeah, yeah. Audrey, can you hear me there? I can. Hi, yeah. how are you? Hi. Would you be into this wildlife and marine life in general or was there just something unusual about Wally that attracted you? Well, I mean, he's so handsome, so how could you not? But, I mean, we've definitely... we have. Well, you mean Wally now or Aiden? Wally, <laughs> definitely Wally. <laughs> but, you know, I think we have an appreciation for just animals in general and definitely, like, the sea. We're always, you know, swimming throughout the year and we love snorkeling and, like, all the jellyfish that have been around. It's cool to just kind of have a look. And um, I think it's really important that we just need to prioritise minding him because he's a gorgeous animal and it's so rare that we would get to see an animal yeah. like that. It's a that privilege Ireland, actually to so. see something like that up close, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. So the fact that he blessed us with his presence, um, it's amazing, yeah. yeah. So how, where did the idea come from for, for the t-shirts and mugs? Yeah, I, I suppose it was really, we were kind of on our own staycation day on, on the Ivory Peninsula around Valencia area and um, it was just a rainy day and obviously we were f- full of all of our social media and everything was full of Wally content and CRS Ireland and Ork Ireland, we were seeing kind of notices about people disturbing him and he was, you know, obviously some people getting too close and things. So I suppose the the idea for the merch was really, you know, a way to admire him on the T-shirts without getting too close, but also, um, again, to get money to, to those people that are helping him. Um, and obviously we wear the T-shirts around ourselves and <laughs> it's kind of a, a visible support of, of Wally and, and the work that CRS Ireland and everything do. What's the reaction been like? Awesome. Yeah, it, it's been it's been good. We've had a few sales, all domestic so far. Galway is the furthest we've gotten, um, but there's been a lot of good support outside of sales to our social media and you know people commenting and tagging their friends and mm. you know people collecting it in their baskets and stuff, ready to to go. Yeah, but, do we do we have somewhere that we can go to take a look at this and maybe buy some, Audrey? Yeah, we actually we have an Etsy store, so we obviously have you know all the socials like TikTok, <laughs> keeping up with the kids. We have Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and then we're selling them on our Etsy store. Um, so it's just if you look up Wally the Walrus T-shirt, or we just called our company Cacker Clothing Co. Um, so either of them up on Etsy, that's where we're selling them from. Okay, I'll be in to buy a mug ASAP. I'm a I'm <laughs> a collector. A I'm a collector. <laughs> Listen, great, great to hear that that it, there's a business venture coming out of it, and indeed donations to uh, Seal Rescue Ireland. Aidan O'Sullivan and Audrey Kane. Thank you very much. Etsy. Look up Wally the Walrus. Etsy, and you'll get to their Etsy store, and you can buy all the memorabilia, the shorts, and the mugs. I think it's just a great idea. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie Can we just talk? 
Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now, 1850-715-996. On Cork's 96FM. Now, the CAO offers are out this afternoon. They'll begin to land in people's inboxes at uh, 2 o'clock today. The offers of places at third level following the results of the Leaving Cert being out last Friday. And, of course, all of the various points are expected to go up because of the high quality of the Leaving Certs. And it's a it's a, a worrying time, if you, if, as if there wasn't enough worrying done last Friday. It's worrying again uh, today to see what people get, what they have uh, looked for with the CAO offers out this afternoon. Lillian Griffin Kelly is admissions officer uh, at the MTU Canva, uh, campus. Lillian, good morning. Hi, PJ. How are you doing? How are good. you keeping? It's an exciting, good, but worrying good. time. The, the Absolutely. You said are, it. <laughs> how, how, do, how are offers distributed these days? The postman isn't involved anymore, I take it. No, not so much. Students will receive an email and they can also go onto the CAO portal and they can access their offer there. Um, so there's a, a they'll get an email as well as being able to go online to, to get it and accept or make a decision on it then, I suppose. What, what do we know about uh, the offers? That have most people got what they want or has there been changing the points? What, what can we tell before the stuff actually comes out? Um, well, I suppose anyone who's been following it over the weekend will know that results are up. You know, there there is certainly an increase in, in grades and, and things like that. So I suppose that would lead us to, to, to think that points will go up for, for many courses. So I suppose we do have a lot of nervous students sitting at home waiting this morning to access their offer to see if it will be one of their top references. Um, so, yeah, what we know at the moment is that it's likely that points are going to go up for, for a few courses, for quite a few courses. So when yeah. someone gets their offer this afternoon, what's the first thing they should do? Okay, so don't panic. <laughs> Obviously, if you open it and it's your one of your top three preferences, you're probably going to be delighted. But for those who open it and maybe are a little unsure or it's it's a, a choice that was further down their preference list, they may be uncertain as to how to proceed at that point. So I suppose my advice to them would be obviously to, you know, don't panic. You have until next Monday at three o'clock to decide whether you're accepting that offer. So don't, you don't need to panic today. I would say talk to somebody, you know, guidance counsellors in your old school will be there. You know, they'll be happy to talk to, to, to the leave inserts from last year. There is also a helpline that's open today. The Institute of Guidance Counsellors are opening a helpline. Um, I'll give you the number of that, actually. It's 1-800-265-165. So there'll be qualified guidance counsellors at the end of that to talk to students as well. Okay. Um, my advice would be, obviously, you know, if, if it's a, a course that is further down your preference list, you may not have done as much research into that course. So what I'd say is go on to the webpage of the of the course, go into it, really go into and, you know, research the modules of the course. So what am I actually signing up for here? Mm-hmm. What is my timetable going to look like? What's, what does the course consist of? What can this course actually lead to? So it may not be the obvious route that you, you thought you were going to take, but m- many courses can lead you in many different directions. So, you know, it's it's definitely worth looking at yeah. what are the postgrad options from this course? Where can it take me if I decide to accept this one um, as opposed to maybe a higher preference that I had listed? And if so you decide, definitely if you, research. Yeah, if you decide not yeah. to accept, are, are you done and dusted with the process then or what? 
if you decide not to accept i suppose it's it's it, that's a big decision you know i mean it's it's a massive decision because i mean you might decide not to accept the preference you're offered there are still obviously opportunities in round 2 round 3 and and so on um where you may get lucky you may be just the next person on the list waiting to be put on your next preference up you know so um that's i suppose worth noting and worth knowing but again you're the, 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 there's an element of risk in that, you know, especially for the more sought after courses. Yeah. So, I mean, if you're if you don't accept your offer and you don't receive uh, a, an offer in a future round, then I suppose you do need to think about, right, what am I going to do to fill my year? How am I going to proceed? Yeah. You know, you'll have students looking at the option of repeating possibly if, if they're unhappy with their points. Mm. Um, there are options, obviously, you know, and I, again, people would want to be getting on this today, you know, PLC co- colleges of further education, um, the post-leaving cert course are a great way to kind of maybe try before you buy. So if you're, if you're uncertain about a course, you could do a level five course, you know, in a college of further education, that'll give you a real feel for the content, for the opportunities, you know, and, and for whether or not you really like that course. Mm-hmm. So that's worth noting. Yeah. So, um, so then once everyone accepts their place and, and all of that, uh, college returns uh, in the autumn or later in the autumn. And yep. I suppose we've had a very unusual year and a half uh, Lillian, uh, preparing for the return, it's going to be interesting for everybody, isn't it? It absolutely is. So I suppose, you know, out in the admissions office here in MTU, we're preparing now to, to welcome students back. And next week, we're actually running an orientation program for post first years or last year's first years who, God love them, didn't really get much opportunity to come to campus and to 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 interact and, and have a, a normal college experience. So next week, we're, we're inviting them into have an orientation, do a campus tour in case they didn't, well, they, they probably might have had one last year and maybe meet some friends from their courses, meet the heads of department who are going to give talks and things like that. The following week then will be for those today who are getting their offers or who accept their offers out in MTU, we're running first year registration. So we'll have all of our CAO applicants or acceptances in that week to register and to meet um, staff on campus and get a feel for the campus and obviously meet each other and, mm. <laughs> and try, to, try to try to find a way to, to return to some normality. We are very hopeful in MTU that, you know, we'll be able to run you know, blended programs at the very least and yes. lectures will, there will be lectures on, you know, on campus, workshops and labs and things like that will be on campus and we're working very hard to make sure we can get as many back as possible, mm. you know, on, on a normal normalised basis, I suppose. It's an exciting time yeah. too because MTU is a new university, effectively. Absolutely. This was our first year um, of running CAO, I suppose, where we were the we were the new university. We were CIT up until January and this year then, obviously, we, we became MTU. So we've now combined with IT Chile and it's been an interesting process to think least and and exciting yeah, yeah it is very exciting there's a lot of new opportunities and you know we, we we increased our courses this year we have a new home economics program there's a pilot studies program there's you know there's a new sports um pedagogy program program as well so you know there's been a lot of 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 great initiatives and and, and you know it's was progress made this year so exciting times and here here's hope it all goes well for MTU and every student in its midst. Thank you, Lillian Griffin Kelly, who is the admission officer of the new MTU, formerly CIT and the ITT in, in Tralee. And they're 
they're newbies and they're welcoming their newbies. Exciting times. Two o'clock today. I just, for anyone who gets results or is waiting on results today, all we can do is wish you the very, very, very best of luck. I forgot to tell you who it was who was in here uh, earlier on this morning. Person who's been a guest on the show many, many times, but never uh, met him before. And that's uh, Arthur Edwards. He's been on with me any time there's been a major happening to do with the royal family in the UK or indeed he was on last year telling me why he wouldn't watch Series 4 of The Crown or why he was really annoyed by Series 4 of The Crown. That's Arthur Edwards, uh, the uh, legendary uh, royal correspondent of the Sun newspaper. His, his wife is, I think she's from Black Rock. So delighted to meet Arthur at last. 1850-715-996. There's a very interesting art exhibition called Curved Horizons. It's uh, featuring the work of eight artists set in St. Peter's Church running until the 3rd of October. But these are unusual works of art because they're all very personal and very unique to the individual artist, one of whom is Caleb Butterly. And Caleb, this this exhibition is very much to do with the art of the naked body. Good morning. Morning, PJ. Thanks very much for having me on. Um, I was I was going to say if I could promote the event first, but you're after doing that for me, so thanks so much for that. Um, yeah, so there is there's eight different artists. I'm just one of them, and there's a lot of them have focused on figure and different types of figurative work. And there's landscapes and there's equine work. There's something kind of for everything for everyone, and there's abstract yeah. work. But my work specifically focuses on it's just exclusively on figures and nudes at the moment, mm. and it's. I think one of the things that kind of pricks people's attention is that the figures I use are everyday people, for want of a better way of putting it. Um, I'd like my work to represent the full spectrum of bodies. So I've had people from, there's a man in the 70s, there's no work of him in there at the moment, but he'll be modeled for me soon. And I've had a woman across me a bag and I've had people from 70 down to, you know, their mid-20s of different sizes and shapes. Right. And it's... For me, those are, I guess, the, I could talk now quite a bit about this, but there is, so the types of bodies we're presented with in the media, typically, I think only represent maybe like a very tiny percentage of the population. And then mm-hmm. on top of that, they're kind of airbrushed out of any kind of representation of reality. Whereas for me, once I started painting more and drawing more and getting better and better as an artist, you crave more and more detail, more and more complex figures. And figures that represent the the lives that people have lived. So if people have had cancer and recover from it, they put on weight and lost weight and put it on again. They've had children and they've had a C-section and they've got stretch mark and cellulite and all these types of things or they've lost a limb or whatever it is. All those things to an artist, to me specifically, but to a lot of artists, make the figure just way better, way more valuable. So as people... There is a perception, I think, amongst women specifically, because they tend to be more objectified, is or physically, is that as they get older, past a certain age, past 13, when they've had a few kids, that their body becomes less and less valuable or visually of less and less worth. Whereas in visual art, specifically in mine, they become more and more valuable. The older they get and the more they've gone through and when they've put on weight and if they've had kids and they've more cellulite stretch marks and all those things, those are all things I like to celebrate and explore because they make the bodies more beautiful, yeah. more tangible, um, and it gives you more to work with. It's it's a rich, a richer, more complex figure, which is what people are like. They're not simple, 
to kind of go on. Sorry. No, because paintings of, of nudes, they're, they're nothing new, um, Caleb. They're as old as art itself. Um, so, but but would you be thinking that is it that they were stylized in the past? They were an ideal kind of a thing. That, that, that in fact, some of the nudes you'd see, they'd look nothing more, no more like a human body than they do a bar of chocolate sometimes. Well, sometimes, yeah, it depends, I suppose, on the era and the style of painting. And obviously, just like with us now, what uh, what is fashionable? Those different body types are more fashionable at different times. And at the moment, uh, well, it, we're presented now in the last 20, 34 years with more and more bodies, especially online. And everyone has a connection to their body and their physical fitness. And you're presented more and more and you're bombasted and blasted with a physically fit, flawless looking body. And now because, you see, for me, the big thing is it's more relevant now because people have filters now on their phone, basically. So when people who already look like a cartoon anyway because they, they fit into a certain genetic type and they live in the gym and that's their life and they're 20 to 25 years old. But they only represent 3% of the population. For me, there's a certain, even in historically in paintings, the nude would have been, say if it was a woman or a man, it was a certain age range of a certain type of build. There were, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying no one painted older or men. If you look at Lucian Freud, he painted everyone. Um, but I think it's more relevant now so when I've experienced so little nice things, I did the RDS uh, two years ago when it was on pre-COVID and there was a lot of people come to that for the art source. And one of my paintings was a picture of a woman, a larger woman, big derriere and loads of cellulite and stuff like that. And it was all, as one woman gave me feedback, she picked it as her favourite because of how faithfully I'd represented the right. flesh. Or a better way to put it is I asked two other women, do they have any favourites? They picked that one, which was a lot of people's favourites. Uh, favorite, they picked that one. When I asked them why is that, they said because that's what an arse looks like, and they <laughs> felt represent, which I thought was amazing. And they they were half the size of the woman in the painting, but they still felt like we don't get to see in the media. You don't get to see because no. you're celebrating. We it. see you the beautiful people. Painted. We see what we we see what media has decided are the beautiful people. Yeah, the saleable. What's the most saleable product? What's what people think is aspiration? But for the majority of people, myself included, that's even if you can achieve that, it's only going to be for a very small window in your life. And you get if you're chasing that, it's diminishing returns to get older. But there is a flip side to it. So little example. So I was working with one model, and she's physically quite athletic. But when I was working with her in particular, we're going through different poses and things. And then we got to one. I was giving her feedback, saying, "Oh, this is amazing." Uh, I'll show you why. And I was showing the specific breakdown of it and all the pieces around it, your leg and everything comes and frames in. And the focus for me was from the top of, say, our pubic area up and around her belly button and back in. It was the core of basically at the bottom of her belly. And she said it was mental because she was standing there all day. And she said the only thing she was feeling self-conscious about that day was how bloated she felt. And she said, for you then to pick out that as being the most beautiful thing yeah. in this particular pose, she just found that kind of mind-blowing. And that's cool to hear yeah. that from well, that, people. That and plenty other work, um, Caleb, will be in the exhibition. I'm not going to, I need to go because I've got to catch someone who has a very limited amount of time to be with us today, but I'm delighted that she is. So that's the Curved Horizons Art Exhibition. Caleb Butterly, one of the artists involved. It's at St. Peter's Church. It has opened now and is open until the 3rd of October and admission is free. And thank you, Caleb, for that. 1850 I'm delighted 
to be able to do something in just a second. It's been an incredible week. It was a, a dream come true to be here, but to, to go and win a, a Solheim Cup on, on American soil is just, I mean, you can't even imagine. Um, we've had a phenomenal team this week from top to bottom, and this is an experience I'm, I'll probably never forget. Looking back on it now, could you have dreamed of anything more? No, and uh, never in my wildest dreams I think the week was going to go this way. Um, I mean, it's it's been an honour um, to represent Europe and, and the trust that Beanie and, and all the captains and the team had in me was, was incredible and um, it's given me a massive confidence boost and I wouldn't have been able to do it without them. Um, and finally, a quick message uh, to the Irish fans, friends and family back home. The support has been incredible. Um, Hopefully we'll see a lot of them in, in Spain in two years' time. But, yeah, it's been it's been fantastic. And, um, yeah, you'll never beat the Irish. That's Lona McGuire, our golfing sensation, speaking to Sky News, our Sky Sports last evening. Her mammy, Breda, joins me from County Cavan. Breda, good morning. And uh, the proudest mammy in Ireland, I'd say. Good morning, PG. Yes, absolutely. Definitely very proud this morning. Well, I've been proud for the last number of mornings, but um, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So thrilled for Leona and the team. Now, she was there last night with her sister, Lisa. They're twins. Yes. They both are professional golfers, but, but she began to, to streak away a bit in the last while, didn't she? She's something else. Yes, um, well, Leon, Lisa is out there just at the moment with Leona as part of our management company, mm. but Lisa has gone back to college. She's actually in college with you down there in Cork doing dentistry, um, so she'll be back to college now next week, right. um, but she spent the Oh, I don't believe it. The line just dropped in the middle of that. I'll try, with Fergal, try, try and get her back there so you can get her back for one more minute. So not only did we discover that one of the greatest golfers we've ever seen coming out of Ireland, uh, her sister is now studying dentistry at UCC. You see, we would, we would, and this is, there's a Cavan girl outside the window there now looking in at me. We would own anybody here. We would own anybody in this city. See, can, we, can, we, can we get her back there? Just let me know if she's back on the line. She is there. The line just dropped. Brida, are you still with me? Yes, I'm still That's with great. you. My so apologies. Not at all. So she's doing dentistry at UCC. So when when yes. will you see Leona now? Is she is she in we'll the states all the time? No, no. She she'll be home herself, and Lisa will be home um, tomorrow. And um, they'll be down to us. They fly in uh, into Dublin tomorrow morning. Uh, so it'll be brilliant. We can't wait to see them. And you know what I mean. Sit down and have the chats about what went on all week, and yeah. it was just been amazing to be able to watch yes. so much golf on the television. Yes. That's been brilliant. When the we coverage, have been the able coverage to be was there. incredible. The coverage was fantastic. The coverage was incredible. It yeah. was, and we had lots of family and friends into the house watching it with us, and you know what I mean. We created our own atmosphere, yeah. and it was great. It was great. Kind of the anticipation and the excitement, even last night as the the matches came down to the wire, yeah. was just unbelievable. And they it did. Was brilliant. And and they did go to the wire. Her record, I mean, a rookie, the first rookie to ever play all five matches and to come away with four and a half points. Like, did she even expect that herself? I mean, when she was called up. Well, I suppose she was so delighted to be picked. Um, I, I don't know exactly what her expectation was. Her expectation was to go out and do herself, you know what I mean, to do herself proud proud and um, she was so delighted that when she got a pick she wanted to do her best for the team and she certainly she certainly did that 
she's she would be a phenomenal team player when she gets the opportunity to play as part of a team. Um, that's the one thing about golf. Maybe you play a lot out on the fairways on your own, you and your caddy. Um, but being part of a team, she revels in that and mm. she thoroughly enjoyed it. And putting points on the board for her team with um, Mel Reid and George Hall, like she just loved that. She, yeah. she was so happy. She really and so was enjoying herself. I watched oh, every. Was, I, that, I, I, that probably I, for us was brilliant. I think I watched every shot she played for the weekend, <laughs> and she just really was having fun out there, yeah, which is brilliant. She Brilliant. She was having a ball. Please pass on our congratulations to her, and indeed, uh, delighted to. We'd, we'd love to speak with her at some stage soon. And Lisa coming back to study dentistry at UCC. We'll find a car connection anywhere. That's Breda McGuire. Uh, Mammy of the, our proudest Mammy in Ireland this morning, uh, mother of Leona Maguire, our new international Irish golfing sensation, who wowed them at the Salaheim Cup. And thanks, she's working at the moment. She took time off to be with us on the opinion line. Thank you for that. We had a conversation yesterday, earlier on about PDA, which is this unusual condition that affects children. It's a form or a part of autism, and we. Had very interesting conversation about it. We've had a call from a very emotional mother who's been telling us about her own daughter. And we'll tell you about that on tomorrow's show. It would take way too long to do that now. Um, but PDA certainly has picked up the ears of a lot of people this morning and we will follow it more uh, over the days to come. And uh, thank you for that call. And she's been talking to Fergal for quite some time. You're listening to Highlights from the Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. Hear the full show on our app, by podcast, or on 96FM.ie.